Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange with Leander Young, where we dig into conversations with seasoned musicians to discuss their life, art, and the faith of jazz as they see it. In this episode, we interview a guitarist, composer, and educator, Amanda Manako. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange. Today, we have a great guitar player, Amanda Nanako. How are you doing, ma'am? Hi. How are you, Leander? Great. Thank you for coming on. So, do you tell the people a short summary about yourself, like your education, where you're from, or where you're based? Okay. My name's Amanda Monaco, and I play the guitar. That's actually a big joke that um, we can talk about later, that every time I have done an interview... In the past, I'm always like, my name is Amanda Monaco, and I play the guitar. Um, I'm from originally from just outside of New Haven, Connecticut. Um, I went to Rutgers for two years, and then I went to William Patterson for two years. So I got the best of both those schools. I studied with Ted Dunbar and a little bit with Kenny Barron and Harold Mayburn and Steve Wilson and what else? Uh, I got to play with Milt Hinton in high school. That was really fun. Um, I moved to New York in 1995, and I have had several projects. I'm also an arts presenter. I have a nonprofit called Convergence Arts, which um, promotes the... Um, Art and Fun of Improvisation with the Community at Large. And one of our projects is Lioness, which is an all-female, uh, a, a collective of women, uh, band leaders, composers, and instrumentalists. And there's also a Lioness Ensemble, um, which I am a part of, with saxophonists Alexa Tarantino, Jenny Hill, Lauren Sevian, bassist Andia Owens, and the drummers are Sylvia Cuenca and Colleen Clark. Yes. First of all, the Lioness album, I do love. Alexa came Thank on you. before. And that's one reason why I really got into it. Funky oh, girl. I love Alexa. I love Alexa. She's just great. Yes. And were you the person who put this project together? You know, Lauren Sevian and I actually put the project together. Initially, the project was um, for a grant through the Queens Council in the Arts. Um, through the uh, the nonprofit, I'm the uh, director of the executive director of is called Convergence Arts. Um, and so Convergence Arts applied for a grant through the Queens Council in the Arts to do a four concert series many years back. Not that many years back. Um, pre-pandemic seems like last century. Um, so it was a four concert series. So my band played, Lauren's band played, Alexa's band played, and Roxy Casa's band played. And then um, Mark Free at Positone Records approached me and said, do you think Lioness could become an ensemble and we could make a record? And I said, sure, that sounds great. So we did that. And um, we recently during the pandemic actually had another, uh, we won another grant, but because of the pandemic, we had to um, record everything in advance. Um, Euphoria Studios in New York City is awesome. They have their COVID, protocol, COVID protocols down to the point where 
you can go there and record and it's safe and it's sanitary. And, and so my band performed, Lauren's band performed, and then the Lioness Ensemble performed. And then we presented those through Flushing Town Hall, which is um, the venue, our venue of choice in Queens at this point. Um, so I still really want to do something with Jamaica Center for Arts and Learning because I love them. Um, and uh, we did a thing on Zoom with a Q&A. And um, yeah, that's that can be checked out actually on Flushing Town Hall's YouTube channel if you look up uh, Lioness or... Amanda Monaco or Lauren Sevian. Um, you can find those concerts and Q&As. Um, How did you get so, Allison Miller to come on that? Well, Mark asked Allison, but I've known Allison for, gosh, 25 years. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, the jazz scene isn't that big. I mean, I'm it a huge is, fan of her. She came on before. I love her to death. <laughs> oh, me too. Me too. Um, I'm actually amazed we were able to get her because she's so busy. I mean, because that's like, you know, Allison's like Matt Wilson. Like everybody loves, everybody loves her. Everybody wants to play with her, you know. And um, but we got her, yeah. For the we got her for the record. We haven't been able to get her for any gigs. We we started working with Sylvia Cuenca and also with uh, Dr. Colleen Clark. I'm not sure. Yes, you're aware, Dr. Colleen Clark. Um, both amazing drummers and amazing people. Okay, so I get a second album. I'm looking forward towards that one. Is there anything you're willing to tell me about it ahead of time? Um, and, uh, I mean, sadly, because of the pandemic, we were supposed to play a bunch of festivals. We were supposed to play Rochester. We were supposed to play Northampton. We were supposed to play... Um, what was the other one we were going to play? Oh, we were going to play at Firehouse 12. I love I love Firehouse 12. It's also a really good excuse to get pizza in New Haven. Yes, that is also you know, true. Being, okay. being, come on, New Haven pizza. Come on, let's hear it for New Haven pizza. I mean, I prefer New York pizza. Okay, that's fine. That's, but New that's Haven pizza is better than Chicago pizza. Well, Chicago pizza is a different kind of thing. I feel like that's apples and oranges, don't you? I was really disappointed when I finally went to one of those places and tried it. And Which I had one did you go to? For it. Oh yeah, that's true. You got to wait a long time. But <laughs> next thing I just wish to know. Okay, so you went and you got your masters, and then I did. Oh, okay. After you. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 um, I got my masters. Yeah, I'd like to get my doctorate. I don't know when it'll happen. Honorary. Honorary. <laughs> oh my God. So yeah. So like my father, I mean, not to get too dark or anything, like I had always wanted to get my master's, but then when my dad got diagnosed with cancer, I finally went back and did it because he used to always say to me, you're going to be the first one in the family. You're going to be Dr. Monaco. I'm like, dad, I don't know if I want to go for a doctor. He's like, no, 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 it's going to be great. <laughs> That's what he used to say. And he died like four days after, four days before I started grad school. Oh, I mean, we hear pancreatic cancer. Like, nobody survives that. I mean, I like to be an optimistic, positive person, believe it or not. Oh, no. I know. But still, sorry for your loss. Thank you. It was, it was um, gosh, you know what? It was like 15 years ago. It's totally crazy. Um, but, um, 
but yeah, so I went and got my master's. Um, I have not gotten my doctorate yet. I, I kind of joke that, um, I can't get another degree until I've paid off the student loans from the last degree. Um, so I've paid off my master's degree loans. So now I can start looking, but I'm kind of, this is the crazy thing about the pandemic because I'm a, I, I, my primary, my primary thing is that I, I'm an educator. I teach at Berkeley College of Music. I mm-hmm. teach Berkeley Online. I teach at Hunter College. Um, I teach uh, this online uh, guitar program called Sonora Guitar Institute guitar intensive. So, and then I have private students. That's been another interesting thing with the pandemic. People that studied with me 20 years ago are finding me. Like I had one student who studied with me at a guitar camp in Connecticut in 2000 when he was a teenager and he found me online he's like, Hey, I'm stuck at home. You're stuck at home. Are you teaching online? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so you actually benefited in a way off this. It's kind of crazy. I'm teaching more now than ever. Nice. Yeah, it's why I have a gaming chair cuz I never get out of my chair. <laughs> cuz you you commented on my chair. Yes, like, I nice know. Chair. And I'm know. like yes. she has like a racing RPG gaming chair. Yeah, I have a red and black gaming yes. chair um, because I never get up. Like, I'll be in my chair all day. It's last semester especially, I was teaching on Zoom 50 hours a week. Nice. When I, when I added it up, I added it all up and I was like, um, yeah, okay. No, that's the way, yes. I mean, I'm glad you're, Pulling it out in this type of situation. Me too. I mean, it's, 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 um, I really miss teaching people in person though. I kind of got used to staying at home though. Well, for me, staying at home is like crazy because I, when I teach at Berkeley, I go up to Boston on Sunday nights usually and I come home Tuesday nights. Gotcha. And I stay, and I stay with family up there. So it's a really nice situation. Oh, I yeah, even just, have a cat. I even have a cat up there. I have, cats. have a cat up there. I have cats in New York. I have a cat in Boston. Well, it's my uncle's cat. <laughs> but still, I have a Boston cat. The only thing I have one of is a husband. I couldn't handle two. You don't want one in Boston? We could find you. No, one. no, please, no, no. no. <laughs> okay, I don't want anybody coming after me, so I'll drop that part. But <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, so I think you had a second professor or. It's not the third that works from Berkeley from here. So do you know Terry though, right? Because Terry came on just the other day. I barely know Terry because uh-huh. we're in like totally different worlds. I, I introduced myself to her once in the elevator and that was about where it ended just because she's doing jazz and gender justice and she's in the percussion department and I'm in the guitar department. So I'm not sure how much you know about the guitar department at Berkeley, but... As a percussionist, I know nothing. So please okay. inform me. <laughs> 55 faculty, 900 guitar students. Nice. Yeah, and that's the low end. We were up to 60 faculty and 1,200 students at one point. But they're not all doing jazz, I assume, right? No, but the thing that's really cool about it is that they're all, for the most part, super open-minded 
And the guitar department is just amazing. I mean, everybody, we're a big, happy family. Um, the chair, and also I might say it's run by two women. Uh, the chair is Kim Perlack, who is, um, she's classically trained. She has a doctorate from UT Austin, um, but she only plays the music of living composers and she has a duo with the slide guitarist and experimental guitarist, David Tronzo. And then the assistant chair is Cheryl Bailey. Okay. Who you may, you may be familiar with. Yes, and she's awesome. They're both awesome. I mean, the funny thing is like m- when I'm saying like the music world is small and, and the, um, the guitar world, even though there's so many of us, is kind of small too. Because Kim, the chair at the Berkeley of the Berkeley Guitar Department, 20 years ago was my roommate at this guitar camp that I mentioned previously. Um, because we both taught there, and you know, how many female faculty do you have? How many female guitar faculty do you have? Not that many. So you know, they're both there for five weeks. You stick them in an apartment together. Which yeah, is what that's did. not what I would have. Well, I mean, it works, but that's kind of weird that they just stuck the only two together. You yeah, but but we were friends already mm. from meeting at the guitar camp like the year prior. So they're like, can you two be roommates? And we're like, yeah. And we had a house, so it was actually pretty cool. So we had all the parties. And then at the end of the summer, we would take all the empties, like the bottles the beer bottles, and we'd cash them in. And the rule was we had to spend all the money on ice cream. Okay. And how much you ice know, cream was that? A lot of ice cream. Because it was like $6 in empty bottles. And we had to eat all of it. We could only do it in one sitting. So like we would get like the fanciest Sundays and such. So. That's to make it All the guys could drink, man. Oh, yeah. I know. Uh, I, people like to say athletes drink a lot. Musicians are far worse. What's that? Especially instrumentalists are yeah, far yeah, yeah. worse oh, drinkers yeah. than oh, athletes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I like that so, story, though. <laughs> yeah, so we would just get ice cream. So who was who is your most known student? Any of them make it big? Nierfelder studied beginning jazz guitar with me. Like when he was 15, he took like a week long class with me. Um, Emily Warren studied with me. She plays with, she's written music like for the chain smokers and yes. other kind of groups. And she's won a Grammy, which makes me really happy. Um, who else? Um, Cecil Alexander was in my Mingus guitar ensemble at Berkeley. Even back then, I was just like, damn, his comping is just exquisite. It's just, it, it, even as a student, like he just had the most exquisite comping and just the soloing, everything about his playing. But I, re- I distinctly remember how he could accompany and compliment soloists. It was just really... So when you see an eye for talent or ear for talent in that situation, your first thing as a professor is what? I'm going to push this person. I'm going to leave this person alone. What do you do? You push them because talent, it only gets you so far. I'm not a huge, and I get in trouble for this sometimes, but I'm not a big believer in talent. You're not? Mm -mm. 
Have you ever read that book, The uh, The Talent Code? No. So I should uh, be reading that one? It's such a great book. It's this journalist who goes around the country, actually around the world, and he checks out all these talent hotbeds and how they work. Because there's this one tennis school in Moscow that for like five years in a row had more number one female players than the entire United States combined. How? But that's for many different reasons. Don't they like train right. full time from like 14 over there? But the thing is, we're talking one tennis court. Okay. Not the country. We're not talking about the country. We're talking about one tennis school in Russia that has one court as opposed to the entire United States. When you think of it like that. I mean, when I think of it like that, I agree with you, but I still, so many variables run to my head why that might be the case. Well, one of the reasons they get into that, they get into the reason, and one of them is because the young, all the players work together. Like the younger players work with the more seasoned players and they focus on technique in a certain way and, and all these kind of things. Another example is this vocal studio in a strip mall in Texas that Demi Lovato came out of and like a couple other like really like big vocalists came out. Anyway, it's a really good read. No, I'm going to read it. No, that's good. <laughs> worth checking out um, for a lot of reasons. But, um, but yeah, I try to push my students. And I also really, really focus on the fundamentals because that's ultimately, look, the longer you play, the more important the fundamentals are, right? So that's something I really focus on, like making sure that my students know how one note relates to every chord, right? Okay, so, so what would be a tip on that? Well, like knowing that, and this is, forgive me for getting too technical, um, you know, for knowing that C is the root of C and the flat nine of B and the nine of B and the flat third of A and the third of A flat and the sus four of G and the sharp 11 of G flat. You see what I mean? Yes. Like that. No, that works. Trust me, most of the people who listen to this have a deep knowledge of music theory. So that works. Great. So yeah, so I'm just really, and I really am tough on guitarists with reading because so many guitarists can't read. And I think that's a mistake. I mean, I've had so many opportunities because I can read. And composers, you know, modern composers are influenced, modern jazz composers are influenced by a lot of things other than jazz, you know? I mean, I've played in two big bands where I've had to use a wah-wah pedal in an odd time signature. Okay. Like that's, yeah, like when I was in Fred Ho's band, he had a piece where I had to play in, with a wah-wah pedal in 15-8. And when I play in Joe Phillips' Numinous Ensemble, he wrote a piece once that went back and forth between bars of three and four. And so it was kind of seven, but kind of not. Now, how did it sound on the average person's ear? Because when people do those type of signatures, I think that's one thing that turns people off. It sounded amazing. Okay, well, shut up. Yeah. <laughs> and the part in Fred Ho's band was very um, quiet, but the part in um, Joe Phillips in Numinous was pretty, it really stood out. But there were like strings and all these other fun things with it. 
Okay, so, so do you prefer combo playing, uh, smallest group, quintets, quartets, or do you prefer big band? I kind of like, I like doing it all, really. Um, I mostly play in combos. Um, but, um, but I really enjoy playing in large ensembles, for sure. Like, Numinous can be up to 30 musicians. So, um... And actually, Numinous just put out a record last year called The Greylands, which is a mono opera about um, a black mother's navigation of America with her teenage son. And it has um, it has one vocalist, Rebecca Hargrove. I don't know if you're familiar with her. No, um, unfortunately. I try to keep up with everybody, but... Well, she's an opera singer, so, so, but the piece has um, a narrator. Rebecca Hargrove plays the mother, sings the mother's parts. Um, but there's also six background vocalists, a string section, a small brass and woodman section, four electric guitars, harp, electric bass. That is um, unique. I like. Oh, it's it's the music Joe wrote for this is just it's just gorgeous. I mean, okay. um, Everyone he needs wrote to check that out. I guess. <laughs> yeah, the Grayland. It's called the Grayland. Um, one of the pieces that's been getting a lot of attention. There's a 19 minute piece movement he wrote, he wrote called Ferguson, and it's about um, what happened in Ferguson. And there's a narrator, and like it's 19 minutes long. It's it's a really powerful record. Um, so I love being part of other people's projects, especially when they're projects that have a lot of meaning and and and, and um, there's a group of us together, like sort of, you know, playing the music, playing the vision of the composer. I agree. But I also, yeah, but I also like being in collective situations. I'm also a band leader. Um. I have a jazz, I have a I have like kind of an avant-garde jazz quartet called Death Blow and that I I say that that sounds like um that Death Blow sounds like the Muppet Show house band if Miles Davis were the musical director. Okay. And then um that's another thing I need to check out. I feel unprepared for this one. <laughs> don't worry about it. Um and then um and then I have um, a more straight-ahead jazz quartet called my glitter. I call it my glitter quartet, and that's with um, Lauren Sevian on Barry and um, Gary Versace on organ and Matt Wilson on drums. Um, and that's kind of a lot of the songs on that record. We made a record called Glitter for Positone, and a lot of the songs on that record um, are sort of. Um, we're sort of shaped by my relationship with Lauren because Lauren and I have been friends for over 20 years. I played her senior recital at Manhattan school. Um, but at the time, like in the early aughts, we used to um, play in a lot of bands together. We played in, um, Otto Ravati had a, had like a, I think it was like a 10 piece fusion band called Ella Funk that we used to play in. And um, we had like a steady gig at the C note in um, Alphabet City. But at the time, Lauren and I were living in the same neighborhood. So 
and I had the car. I had a Volvo station wagon, like a beat up old Volvo. Um, and, um, she'd come over to my house before every gig and we would like put on makeup together and like a ton of glitter and then go to the gig. So that's why the band is the glitter band because, you know, a lot of glitter. And, um, have you ever done pop recordings? Have I? Um, nah, okay. It's not. Have I? I mean, I've done pop gigs. Well, okay, so I was in a band for seven years from 2000 to 2007 called the Lascivious Biddies. And it was an all-girl band. And we had some cabaret stuff, but we had some pop-ish stuff at times. It was a little all over the place. We called ourselves a next-generation cabaret band. Mm -hmm. Um, That's kind of the closest to pop that I got. No problem. I'm just curious because I know for the most part, jazz musicians tend to stay in their little lane, but you are very diverse already. So I was just curious. Yeah, I don't think, I mean, am I on any pop records? <laughs> I'm trying to think. <laughs> but no worries, no worries. Well, I don't think I am um, that I can think of. So what um, is something your students don't seem to understand or expect when they come out of your universities that isn't true? What do they expect that isn't true? Yes, like how do they see the jazz world in in their university that isn't so? It kind of depends, really, because I mean, like, Berkeley's pretty... Berkeley's pretty real about things. Like, all of the students take career development classes and stuff like that. Like I teach a career development seminar at Berkeley and I kind of just set it straight, you know, because I'm old enough now that I can tell a bunch of stories about musicians and like what happened to them, you know. Um, I think that there are other schools. I don't think that the level of, um, and I think this is a generational thing more than anything. I think people don't realize how hard it is. But when I say how hard it is, I mean how much work it is, you know, because you have to have the right perspective. You have to work really, really hard, like harder than you think. And you have to understand that there are people who might be real jerks that, and that has nothing to do with you. You know what I mean? They might throw it at you, but. It's their pain, not yours. And so it's really important to have a thick skin and realize that you're still at the end of the day dealing with human beings with flaws and with baggage and that you need to just be able to navigate, take care of yourself and figure and be very true to what you want and figure out how to make it happen. Despite the obstacles. And things aren't going to turn out the way always going to turn out the way you want them to. And it is going to be more work than you ever thought it had to be. But then you have to ask yourself, number one, how bad do you want to be good? And number two, how much do you love this music? And also number three, are you a human being too? Because if you only focus on the music and you forget that you're a human being, everything's going to fall apart. 
Can you explain and that you're gonna, What's that? What do you mean by that? Well, if you're only focusing on music. Like you and give up your personal life? Like you give up your personal life. Okay. Or like, or like you... Or like you have, say, a partner that you take for granted who is basically, you know, keeping the whole thing together in the background while you're off playing like a gazillion gigs because you think you're supposed to play a gazillion gigs, not necessarily because you're playing with quality gigs, but because you're like, oh, it's all about quantity and not quality. That's the other thing too. It's a quantity quality thing, you know? I mean, I don't, I think that's more of a situation if you have the options. What do you mean? Like if you could only perform at two places and to make the rent, you have to perform there 20 times. Right. But I'm just saying like, being 40 years old and still saying yes to every single gig, even though you're miserable. Okay. That's a deeper part of it. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I mean, when you're 25, yeah. When you're 25, you say yes to everything. When you're 25, you say yes to everything. When you're 40 and you're married with a kid (laughs) that you never see. Yeah. You're describing a lot of artists I know. Yeah, I know I am. And like, I know them too. And I just think, okay, so here's the real, here's the real, uh, the real reason why I talk like this. I have multiple sclerosis. I was diagnosed 16 years ago. I was forced to slow down. And I was forced to reassess because I had to really look at what I wanted out of being a musician And I had to look at, well, okay, I could play this gig and that gig and the other gig. Is that what I'm really going for? Am I just going for like playing a zillion gigs and hanging out till four in the morning and then like, you know, not getting enough sleep and not eating right. And, you know, and I'm not saying that everybody does that. You know, I'm not saying that. But the silver lining of getting a chronic illness was that I had to really refocus my priorities and I feel like I have a much better life for it. And knock on wood, I'm doing pretty well. You know, I haven't had a new lesion in 15 years, so. That's good. 15? Is it 15? 13. Well, still. Congrats on that. So, thank you. So I think that that, I mean, that's going to give me a different perspective. Like anybody that has a chronic illness, like I'm sure, you know, anybody in the business who has that going on and I can't speak for them and I won't, you know, okay. but, um, so yeah, it just gives you, it, it just gives me a whole different perspective, you know? Yes. So where do you think jazz would be in 10 years? Probably where it is now, but with more women. I have no problem with that at all. (laughs) But do you think it'll be more popular? Do you think it'll be less in demand? You know, I think, I think it will be, it will be different because I think there's a lot of musicians today that are very community minded. It's a very different thing. 
in terms because of because it's not because I've seen some nasty how, jam sessions. Well, that's just that's jam sessions. That's people being insecure, you know. Um, it's uh, I think that there are always going to be people in jazz that are community or community oriented and that are sharing the music in ways that um, will keep it thriving. Um, and he's like, one of the things when I was a kid is that that drew me to jazz in the first place was the community aspect of it. And I was just really lucky that I, I grew up like in grew up, like I started playing jazz in, in high school, like halfway through high school. But um, I was lucky because some of the musicians that I came up with were people like Jimmy Green and Wayne Escoffrey. Like they're some of my oldest musical friends. You know, I met them. I met Jimmy at Allstate and I met Wayne in high school. And, um, so it was always, and we used to go to Jimmy's house and play music and his family would like love it. Like one time, one time his sister had a birthday party and we all just came over and played for everybody, you know, and it was just this big community thing. So I kind of came up thinking of jazz as community based and I still think of jazz as community based. You know, I don't think of it as sit and stare music. Sometimes I would have to disagree with you on the community-based part, but I'm just more curious about one other question, one other statement you just made. So why do you think there'll be more women in jazz? Um, there already are. I mean, I agree, but why do you think there's going to be that much more? Have you seen more enrolling? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, enrollment's up. I mean, in the five years that Kim Perlak's been at Berkeley, I think the number of female guitarists has doubled. Okay. Now, it wasn't a super high number to begin with, but it's still doubled. No, that's still double. I agree. Yeah. So I think, I think things are shifting. I think Me Too has had more, more, um, has done, has, has really opened up possibilities for a lot of young women. You know, and I think as an educator for me, it's been a, a real mission to nurture those female musicians and make sure that they know that anything is possible. And because I feel like I was fortunate enough to have had that experience in high school. Cause when I got to Rutgers, when I got to college, um, the guitar department was really small and Ted Dunbar was amazing. I mean, he was Studying with Ted Dunbar was one of the best things I ever did in my entire life. It was just, he was just amazing. He was an amazing mentor. He was wise. He made me work really, really hard. He scared the crap out of me just because of what he knew and how he had basically lived through jazz history. Even if you've never heard of Ted Dunbar, you've heard of some of his students like Mal Rogers, Vernon Reed, Trey Anastasio. Uh, um, and he was really close with West Montgomery. He used to sub for West Montgomery in Indianapolis, you know. But anyway, the point being is that while studying with Ted was great and with Kenny Barron was great and with um, 
Bill Fielder, who was a trumpet professor, but also the head of the department. My classmates were misogynists. Not all of them. (laughs) But unfortunately, you know, I was the youngest guitarist in the program and I had worked really hard on my sight reading. So I got put in the big band. And there were some older guitar cats that were not into that. And they were also really sexist. Like, I remember one of the best musicians at Rutgers at the time was a flute player, a female flute player. And she had really short hair. And I remember people saying, like, guys saying, oh, she's not really a girl. I was like, what the hell? She plays circles around you, so she's not really a girl? Like, what is that? Hmm. You know? And, And it ended up just getting, like, so toxic. And also, too, at the time, it was just it was just so toxic that I actually had to transfer. I transferred to William Patterson. Oh, okay. That's why you finished there. Okay. Yeah. But let me tell you, Rufus Reed was amazing. Rufus Reed is still amazing. And he ran that program. And I've talked about it with Rufus. You know, I thanked him like years after the fact. I was like, you know, the program you ran at Patterson was so... In my experience with it was it was so everyone was equal. Like it didn't matter if you were male or female or both or neither, whatever. Could you play? Did you want to play? Great. No, you that's know? one thing I base I must say about music for the most part. At the end of the day, people only care if you could play. Right. But they at at when I but my my peers and not everybody at Rutgers was like that. You know. But it was toxic enough, and I was naive enough and young, because I started college when I was 17, and I was, like, really naive. Um, I also had my first MS symptoms in college, and I was misdiagnosed. I was actually misdiagnosed twice. I went numb on the right side of my body my freshman year, and um, I had an MRI, and they're like, no, you're just stressed out from college. It's like, no. Yeah. Yeah. I can see them saying that. <laughs> yeah. And then I went blind to my left eye for six weeks and then I came back and they're like, you're just stressed out. It's like, really? Uh, this is the doctor? Yeah. And actually it was a hospital in mid-state Connecticut that ended up closing a couple of years later and destroyed every scan they ever did. Okay. Yeah. It was really special. It was, it was, yeah, yeah. I don't even remember the name of the place. Like, honestly. yeah, let's not leave a bother to look that up. But that's yeah, we're not gonna look that up. But like, yeah, like because I remember my mother telling me she's like, oh yeah, they closed and they destroyed everything because I tried and get tried to get the records. Like when I finally got diagnosed proper, I tried to get the records and I asked my mom and she's like, oh, they closed and they destroyed everything. I'm like, excuse me, what? That's not shady at all, right? No, it's not shady. It's not shady at all. Um, but uh, but yeah, William Patterson, I have very fond memories of William Patterson. I also, the other thing about William Patterson is that um, at that point, I, I've always been a teacher. Like I've always, I've always taught guitar lessons and um, uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, start being a student at and then do the teacher training program at uh, a place called the National Guitar Workshop, which no longer exists, sadly. But um, I... Um, I was part of the of NGW for from 1989 to 2010, and um, and so I've always yeah I've always been a teacher. So I actually got some students in New York City my junior year of college. So what I would do is once a week, 
I would drive my beat up old Pontiac Grand Le Mans that got 12 miles to the gallon. It was my grandfather's car. But I would drive, um, once a week I would drive in to teach and I would take Harold Mayburn and Steve Wilson to the bus station. So we would get to hang out in the car and they would talk and tell stories and it was really great. <laughs> it was just such a great experience, you know? And I think that that was also part of it for me is just, I've always thought of jazz as a community because I was lucky to have these teachers that, you know, are human beings too, but also just absolute monsters on their instrument, you know? Oh, that's great. <laughs> Yeah, it was really fun. And I always stayed, you know, I was I always stayed friendly with Harold, you know, and Steve, actually. I've worked with Steve a little bit. Um, I never got to work with Harold, which I really, really regret not ever having done that. Because um, that was a shocker when, when Harold passed. Like, I don't think anybody saw that coming. So here's where I'm going to ask you a hard question. Okay. In your experience, what is one thing that jazz or jazz community in general has done to turn you off or just to plain piss you off? How much time you got? <laughs> Give me like three key ones. Three key ones. Um, I feel like one of the things is this myth around jazz being better than everything else. You know, I think it's really, one of the things that I find challenging, and I've had this conversation, actually I had a great conversation with my cousin about this because my cousin said to me once, she goes, I don't understand your music. And I said, you don't have to understand it. What, I mean, who said you had to understand it? She's like, well, it's jazz. Don't you have to understand it? I'm like, no. You either like it or you don't. She's like, well, I don't understand why the beat moves. I'm like, that's okay. You don't have to, you don't have to understand why the beat moves, you know? And of course she ultimately just said, well, it's just not my thing. I can't dance to it. I'm like, okay, that's totally fine, you know? But like it or don't like it. Don't say that you don't like it because you don't understand it. And also too, jazz has to be like, you know, my, my three-year-old nephew... Oh, well, he's 16 now. Jesus. Um, when he was three years old. Um, so my husband's a jazz journalist. I don't know if you knew that. My husband's um, Andre Henkin from the New York City Jazz Record. No, I did not. Yeah. Okay. So Yeah, I really came to this one unprepared. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know what? It's really okay. We're all busy because, you know, February was like 36 hours and 37 weeks, like all at once. That's pandemic time. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Because it was. Because this year has been that. Right? I think the big joke um, that was at the beginning of the pandemic is that everybody's house is like Las Vegas. No one knows what time it is. And cocktails are okay at any hour. <laughs> well. Yeah. It's kind of, the third one though was that no one knows. Oh, I blew that one. Never mind. But um, but what I'm saying is that like, so when my my nephew, my sister would come over with my nephew when he was like two, three years old, right? And the thing that 
um, if I may toot the horn of the New York City jazz record, Andre and Lawrence listen to every record they get. They listen to everything. 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 That's kind of hard to believe, but okay. Yeah. They may not listen to everything straight through, but they listen to everything. And if they don't, yeah, they're like, they're kind of insane. And they, they not only do they, they listen to everything, but they actually, um, they actually take notes on everything. Like they give it like a numerical kind of like, okay, well, this means this and this. Means well, I have that kind of numerous thing. younger artists that come on here or just have talked to outside of here. And they literally say they have a hard time just getting a press write up. Well, um, do they have gigs? Uh, before Corona? Yeah, they have like, maybe it's not in Birdland, maybe it's not in Zinc Bar, but they have gigs. Well, it doesn't matter where the gig is. I mean, a lot of it too is just that the market is saturated. Like, that's the other thing too. Fair. You know, the market's really saturated. The market's really saturated for, um, I mean, they get 600 CDs a month. What do you say? Like they never, they, they get 600 CDs a month. Like, they never stop listening. 600. Okay. Like, my husband's never not listening. You know? Fair. It, it's like nonstop. But, but I think with jazz, I mean, going back to your question, because we kind of got um, off a little bit. So, yeah, somebody, my nephew would come over at like two, three years old, and he would have like this crazy free jazz record that sounded like a fire in a pet store. And, <laughs> this kid would be dancing. To free jazz. Yeah. That is not the norm. Me personally, right. that's one thing I'm a little A on. Yeah, but my point is, it's just like, in a lot of ways that I think it's really learned what you like and what you don't like. And I think... I think that another problem, and this is, of course, a bigger problem, is just the way that mass market culture portrays jazz. You know? In terms of what? Just in terms of, like, just, like, on sitcoms. When, like, whenever they talk about jazz, like, nine times out of ten, they, they say something stupid. You know? And they put it up on this, like, they separate it, and they say that you know, oh, jazz, jazz is this quirky niche kind of thing. Why? Why is it a niche kind of thing? But I Who had, said so? But I had people also come on and say that one of the reasons we have this, we're not mainstream is because, like your friend said, there's no dancing music for the most part. Right. So wouldn't you suggest actual jazz artists to at least try to feature or accommodate to that? Maybe write a, a shorter song? Because most pop songs are like, what, three and a half minutes, I think it is? But that's the funny thing too, right? So I've been kind of like, I mean, that's a question I'm still trying to answer, honestly. Because, so I don't know why or how, but I started listening to, like, early recordings of the band Chicago. Yes. Like, 1968, when they were still Chicago Transit Authority, right? Mm -hmm. When Terry Kath was still alive, who was, like, 
the founding member, one of the founding members, the guitar player. Now, if you listen to their record, Chicago Transit Authority from 1968, it has beginnings on it. That song Beginnings, you know, that. It also has a seven minute noise guitar solo on it. Yes, I understand that. If you listen to right? Journey's first album, it was the same thing. It was the instrumental, right. long songs and everything, but then they became more mainstream. Right, but that stuff is still there. And even now, too, like their songs are still longer. So I think, I don't know if it's necessarily the time, the time frame, because I've been noticing, too, that like with pop songs, some pop songs are getting longer. And some pop songs are delving into jazz, jazzy kind of stuff a little more. You know? So I think, I don't know. This might just me be, this might just be me being a little too optimistic for my own good. But I feel like what really needs to happen is that we just need to change the conversation. And I'm not saying that the conversation is going to be easily changed. But I think that there are opportunities. I think there are opportunities. Like, I don't know the answers, but I think that there are opportunities out there for us as musicians to include other people. Meaning that the music can be marketed as acceptable accessible to everyone. Now, I think a lot of that is just, I mean, if you look at somebody, I don't know, in my opinion, you look at somebody like Matt Wilson, right? Matt Wilson's latest album is called Hug. You know? Yes, I know the album, yes. Yeah. And, you know, that's... And his music is very welcoming and his music is very, it's fun and he's having fun. And when you go see him play, it's fun. Maybe you can't dance to it, but it makes you feel good. Right? Yes, I get you. And then, so that's sort of his thing, right? And then... You have somebody like Esperanza, right? Who did like this whole Facebook Live thing when she was making a record a couple of years back. Yes, I remember that. You know? And I think, I think in the, the, the problem, the challenge with jazz, right, is that jazz for the longest time was one of those things where people, you know, once you got into the bebop era, it became one of, it did become like one of those sit and stare musics, right? Where people were ooh and ah. Yes, over, I agree on you that. You know, right? But we don't live in an ooh and ah culture anymore. <laughs> we live in a, I want to be in your living room culture, Right. So how do you maintain the integrity of jazz by living in a I want to be in your living room culture, (laughs) right? So that's just kind of the question, I think. We love this music, you know? 
I agree. When we play this music, is the first thing you think that he or she loves this music? I can honestly say most of the time, yes. Good. Okay, that's good. Because I don't always feel that way. Really? The person playing? Like, I know they love... Oh, that's what I mean. The person playing, I believe, does... They might be having a bad day. Now, if you want to go to the person in the audience, a lot of times they come unexpected, not knowing what to expect, and then they hear some stuff. Let's use free jazz. And they're like... Yeah, if this is jazz, I guess I don't like it, and they move on. No, I'm actually talking about the musicians. Okay. Because I think that, I know that, that the musicians love the music because I'm a musician. I'm saying, does the audience know that the musician loves the music? I don't know how and to I'm, answer that. Yeah, neither do I. Um, oh, that's another good messed up point that I guess. It is a messed up point. It is a messed up point. And I will say that because one of the things that kind of goes along with that is that I've had people say to me after I've gotten off stage, did you enjoy yourself? And I'm like, I had a great time. Why? And they're like, you didn't smile once. I'm like, do I have to smile? So then it gets into really, really dangerous territory, right? Oh. Okay, this is going completely different. I like this. Go. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> right. Okay. So, and again, this is like a longer conversation. No, I understand. It's, a, <clears throat> it's actually a very, it's a very uh, in-depth conversation that cannot be solved in one podcast if in like 10. Agreed. Okay. But... I mean, I feel like, how do I say this? I feel like there's, um, well, here's another thing. And this is actually taking it in a different direction. Go. Why do jazz musicians that aren't playing in large clubs always start like a half an hour late? Well, that's a no. Okay, that's another thing. You know what again. that says that's to a, an audience? I know that's a that's another point I have. And then they come with like a, if they're wearing a suit or something professional, it's dirty, it's wrinkled up. There's a whole bunch of stuff like that. Oh, that bugs dude, me. don't get me started on that. Their presentation alone. Exactly, but that's also important, and I think that. But there are people that would disagree. They'd be like, why do we have to look so good? It's like, you know what? Because you're giving you're giving somebody something. You're offering somebody something. Music is an offering. Music is for everyone and music is for sharing. Okay? So if you go with that premise, the music is for everyone and music is for sharing, and you're going to show up and, you know, like I remember this is one guy. I don't remember his name. But every time I would see him play, he'd wear the same tie and the tie had a stain on it. And he never got rid of the stain. And I would just remember him. And I'd like be going to the game and be like, I wonder if he's going to have the stain on the tie again. So was that more of his thing? Like, No, it was that he was lazy. Uh, okay, never mind. And I think it's really important, you know, just because you're, just because you're a badass on your instrument doesn't mean you can like walk into a room and be like, look how great I am. And I look like shit and I don't care. Huh? 
Yeah. You know, and I can, you know, I can be all elusive and mysterious and you'll just say, oh, damn, he can play. It's like, no. And yeah, of course, that works for some people because it makes them feel like they're a part of something. But I think it's really important as jazz musicians, like. We can't. I don't know. We can't. I feel like we can't really serve the music. And act like, well, we just can't act like divas, you know? We just can't do that. But, of course, that gets really complicated. The diva because- part is another thing altogether because all I can say is that I know people who would turn down gigs because they're not, they're, they see it as beneath them. At the same time, they have no other place to perform. Man, music is, we're lucky to play music. Like we're, we're, you know... And I know this word gets thrown about too often, but we're blessed to be able to play this music. You know? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's um, something being beneath, you know? I mean, saying that it's beneath you as opposed to saying, well... I don't know. I... It's such a complex question, right? That, um, and there's so many variables. But I just kind of feel like with music that if I don't know if you're gonna share it, right? Like you're sharing it. Like you're when you put your music out into the world, you're sharing it. There's a sharing component, whether you like it or not. Yes, I agree with that, yes. And sometimes it can just be introducing a tune and telling like a two-sentence story about it. You know? Like there's a Jim Hall tune called Careful. You're familiar with it? Yes, ma'am. And... You know what he said about that tune? He called it he called it careful because it's a 16 bar blues and if you're not careful it's going to turn into a 12 bar blues. And <laughs> that tune is based on the diminished scale. So it's not even like it's kind of angular and kind of quirky and not exactly like your typical like you know it's not really for most people, it wouldn't be that singable. Excuse me. <clears throat> but um, but just when I heard that story the first time, it's like, you got to be careful. If you're not careful, it's a 16-bar blues. It'll turn into a 12-bar blues. And that, that made me chuckle, you know? And even, you know, so like the civilian in me thought that that was um, funny. You know, the musician in me was like, oh, I got to try. I got to play this tune. Oh, my God, this is amazing. Look at that. Look at the melody and the way it works. I'm like, ah, ah. But the non-musician, do you use that term civilian? Yes, I do. Okay. (laughs) You know that's a New York thing, right? Really? Yeah, I talk to people in Boston. I'm like, we use the term civilian, right? They're like, no. I thought that's a military thing, but okay. Well, it is a military thing, but it's also a music thing, right? Because we're in the trenches of music. Touche. Got me. 
So. You're on point today. <laughs> I actually, it's really funny because I have I have a cousin in the military. He's an MP. He's actually Jim Madison. Oh, MPs. That's a whole other set of jokes I could make on them. But yeah, but yeah, I mean, he was like part of Jim Mattis's team. It was like crazy. Um, the only reason we got to see him for Christmas one year is because Mattis resigned. He got to come home. Um, but uh, but I remember saying to my uncle, who's like not into jazz at all, really. Um, I was like, yeah, you know, musicians, the military, and civilians. We both have civilians. <laughs> and he thought that was really funny. Um, made him feel a little closer to his niece, the jazz musician. What the hell is that? Um, but I guess, I mean, I'm kind of rambling, but I think that with jazz, I just think, I just think it's it's important, you know, to present it as something for everybody. There's this great avant-garde jazz pianist named Mara Rosenblum. And every time I get an email from her, she talks about how like music is for everyone and music is for sharing. And music is for sharing is in like every single email she sends out. And I don't know how if that shapes how I listen to her music. It probably does though because she's so forward with her with her listeners and friends she like you know every email's like friends listeners you know that kind of thing okay but i don't I, know but there are a lot of people that are like i'm not doing that i'm not playing that game see that's the other thing too is that people look at it if you have to market yourself it's a game and I get that, you know. But I, did, uh, yeah, like I said, that's another thing altogether because marketing is key. Right. Because no one's going to listen to you without the press, without the follow, without even a recommendation. If you can't get it heard. Right. Very few but people are going to reach out to look for you. But are you getting it heard for the right reasons becomes like the big. I mean, depends what your goal is. Right. Well, that's the other thing too. It depends what your goal is, right? And that's another, you know, that's another thing, right? Mm -hmm. I've found that the older I get, it's, it's more important for me to play with musicians who Like, I don't care if you're, if you're a demigod, if you're a jerk, I don't want to work with you. That is fair. I think most people you know. would agree with you on that. Yeah, but I think there are a lot of people that still do it. I mean, you know. that's something I'll tell you off the air. Many people do it. Exactly. So, um, I mean, in a lot of ways, I'm kind of simple-minded. I just, I just kind of feel like... And maybe it's just because I was so lucky my first few years of playing jazz and like the fact that people I met in high school are people that I'm still close with and I still play with. You know what I mean? I have a record with Wayne Escoffrey from like 2009 called Playdate. And it's, it's Wayne and this pianist, Noah Behrman, who um, 
I don't know if you know or are familiar with Noah Behrman. Um, he's a phenomenal jazz composer and pianist, um, teaches at Wesleyan University, um, started a nonprofit um, called Resident Motion, which is the sound of musical change. And he does these jazz up close series where he brings in musicians to play. Actually, this is, this is an example um, of someone who's taken jazz and brought it to the community. So Noah's got, and I've played this series and it's, it's great. So what Noah does is he's got this thing called, um, this series called Jazz Up Close and it, and it takes place at a library in Middletown, Connecticut. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's a concert slash Q and A, but it's a Q and A after every tune. It's not like they don't play the whole set and then people ask questions. They play a tune and then people ask questions and they have a dialogue and then they play another tune and it's the same thing. This has been going on for, I think, like six years now. Yeah. And with the pandemic, they did it virtually. And I assume it's doing good still. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean... Um, but that's kind of an example just of something that's out there, you know? No, that's good to know. Jonathan Blake on there. <laughs> I went to college with him too. I love Word. Jonathan. Jonathan is really, um, he has a concert Sunday actually at William Patterson. In Patterson? At William Patterson. They're doing oh. the... Jazz Room series he's going to perform virtually oh, with his band. Virtually, yeah. I was going to go to Wayne. Oh, well. <laughs> I know, right? <sighs> okay, but, um, but Gosh, Jonathan Blake, just one of the kindest, most wonderful human beings, you know? Just so great. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I guess it just kind of, for me, it's just always been... I've, I've kind of wanted to focus on community, you know, and, and I, and I have wanted to, you know, make jazz a thing where like, it's just music. It doesn't matter if you've taken a class, like, you know, like, would you take a class on, on Taylor Swift? At this point you might, because she's written so much stuff, but. Yeah. But like initially. Yeah, I'm actually curious about how she's truly started writing. Because now know, it seems just... like every boyfriend she dumps, she writes an album about. Why not? There's nothing wrong with that. She, dude, she sold more albums than I could ever dream of. She fills up stadiums. I know. She also gave a million dollars to some kid to finish her degree See? last year. Those are the goals. <laughs> you know, something like that. Um... But, um, yeah, and she also just wrote a murder ballad. I don't know if, are you familiar with murder ballads? Like the con the, the genre of murder ballads? <laughs> no. Murder dude, ballads? It's a real th- yeah, dude, it's a real thing. Uh, okay, go. I'm sorry, I just need to know this one, go. Oh, yeah, I mean, I can't <laughs> tell you the whole thing about it. Like, you should really talk to to there's other people you should really talk to before me, but like a murder ballad, this started, you know, started, they started being written, I think in like the 17th, 1700s, 
or the 18th century or whatever, the premise of it is that, you know, a man kills his woman, usually because she's his lover and pregnant okay. and regrets doing it and loves her but had to kill her. So some of the more... <laughs> no, but some of the more modern-day murder ballads, Hey Joe by Jimi Hendrix, think about the lyrics. Hey Joe, where are you going with that gun in your hand? Eh, going to shoot my old lady, you know, I caught her messing around with another man. Right? And then the last verse, he has to run to Mexico because he's killed his woman. Oh. Gone with and the wind, Christopher. Oh, okay, shoot. Yeah, a lot of them. And then, like, and then, like, <laughs> and then Guns N' Roses, I used to love her, but I had to kill her. Right? Yes. I had to put her six feet under. Yes. Anyway. How do we get on the subject? I don't know, but you know what? You get, you're good. <laughs> Yeah. Actually, that was one of the last gigs I did. Oh, Taylor Swift wrote an amazing murder ballad. She wrote like a 21st century murder ballad called No Body, No Crime. And it's a 21st century twist because the guy kills his girl, his lover, or he kills his wife or whatever so he his mistress can move in, but then his wife's best friend kills him. That, um, that doesn't usually happen in a murder ballad. Mm. So it's like a 21st century murder ballad. I did, however, one of the last... One of the last gigs I did before the pandemic hit was on March 8th of last year. And I did this thing called the Murder Ballad Project, um, which was a, a, a two sets of, mur a, of murder ballads sung by women. Okay. So it was deep. So like we did um, that, you know, that Johnny Cash song, Delia's Gone. Delia, oh Delia. Delia, all my life. If I hadn't shot poor Delia, I would have made her my wife. Oh, Delia's gone. One more round. Delia's gone. There's like tons of songs like that. Yeah, apparently I need to read up on some more stuff. But okay. I can put off, off afterwards, I can put you in touch with the right people for that if you want. Oh, definitely. Because so. I have a, because I have a friend. I have a friend. My one of my best friend from high school actually d did the murder ballad project. She's a she's got a folklore degree, and that was one of her big things that she did in grad school. She can tell you way more than I can. Oh, definitely. So, okay, because so, that's like a whole other. Yeah, thing. it's a whole other thing. But okay, so we, before we go, we normally yeah. give a shout out and show our respects to the artists who came before us. Okay. So I'm going yes. to tell you an instrument. You are going to tell me who you would want to play it on your album. Okay? Okay. On trumpet. Oh. Lee Morgan. I can't argue with you there at all. I really can't. Okay. On saxophone. Sonny Rollins. Why Sonny Rollins? Sonny Rollins is the king of motivic development. And he's also just super wise and super amazing. And he had Jim Hall in his band, which, and actually when I was in high school, I used to play along with Sonny Rollins trio records to work on comping. Okay. Actually, I still do that. Still do that. <laughs> okay. So I'm bass. Rufus Reed. He's just my favorite. I love Rufus. And I've played with Rufus before. Okay. I give you that then. On keys. James Williams. 
Why? Really? Okay. Why James Williams? So soulful. Because he just was... Actually, it could also be Harold, though. Well, that's a tough one. Okay. It could be either one of them. On percussion. Ooh. Somebody I always wanted to play with was um, Paul Motion. I know him all over the place, but yeah, know. that's why. I'm, yeah, so why? Because I just love his interpretation of melody. Okay, and on guitar. Oh, Jim Hall. Jim Hall. Out of all the guitars, Jim Hall? Jim Hall's my all-time favorite. Okay. Now, what made him his your all-time famous, though? What made him my favorite? Yeah, out of everyone, though. I'm not saying he's not great. He's phenomenal. I just always love the way he comped. I've always been big into comping. Like, I've almost been big... More into comping than soloing. Like when I wasn't when I first started transcribing things, I transcribed comping more than I transcribed soloing. And yeah. it's weird. I'm, I'm weird. Hey, it's a show about you, and I'm not judging. I was just curious because yeah, <laughs> you're right. He doesn't take these legendary solos. He solos well. I love the kit he used in general. He was a what he Les Paul, right? Hmm. He had a Les Paul guitar, right? No, he had a 175, and then after that, he had a Sadowski. Okay. Dang. Well, I'm not a guitarist. I tried. <laughs> it's really, it's totally okay. <laughs> okay. So Don't then. worry about it. Because I'm usually really bad with gear, I'll be honest with you. Like, I've played the same guitar for 15 years. Well, can you tell the people your social media, your websites, where to find you? Yes. Every bit of my social media has the handle Guitar Monaco, M-O-N-A-C-O. Because that's what Delta Airlines named my guitar when they made me buy a seat for it in 2007. And I still have the ticket. It says Monaco. And it said, (laughs) I still have the ticket. It says Monaco, comma, guitar. That's another off-the-air thing. You're one of those people who don't check in your instrument. Okay. Fair. Oh, I do now. I do now. <laughs> I have a flight case now. I've got a Calton flight case. Are you kidding? I could throw that thing down the stairs and it wouldn't even go out of tune. Okay. <laughs> That's what I was going to tell you off the air. They have cases that are amazing now. Well, okay. this was in 2007. This was this was the first time it was a problem. I'd never, ever had a problem getting a guitar on the plane before. Ever. ever. Okay. Fine. So that. this was the first time. And, it, it, and after that tour... I bought a flight case. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Because it was really, it never, look, before 9-11, it wasn't a problem. Okay. That's understandable. You know, yeah. I've been taking planes, I've been taking guitars on planes since like the, the early 90s. And like, there was never an issue because, and it only became an issue because they started charging for luggage. So everybody takes their luggage on and puts in the overhead now. Yes. Okay. That's when all this started. Yeah. Because, because, and now I have a great flight case. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, to find your, uh, what's it called? If they want to have lessons with you, it's still the same website? 
Yeah, amandamonaco.com. Okay, no problem. It's the website. So, Amanda, thank you for coming on. means a lot. Leander, thanks so much. It was great talking with you. Likewise. And everyone, this is Leander from Improv Exchange. Thank you. Have a good day. That's that on jazz. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Improv Exchange. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, please be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Improv Exchange. <laughs>